All right. Let's go ahead and uh, open up to Psalm 10. We've been plodding right along. Um, this is week 10 of our Summer in the Psalms series. 140 more to go. Psalm 10. This morning, the title of the sermon is All Things New. And if you remember, in Psalm 9, we saw David rejoicing in the Lord's sovereign goodness. That not only is God sovereign over all things, but He's good in how He sovereignly reigns over all things. He is good in all of His ways. He is just in all of His ways. He's righteous in all of His ways. And He displays that through the working of His hands. And because God is a righteous judge, the righteous judge, and because God is a gracious king, David found a lot of comfort, and, and, and we should as well, in the fact that God rules and reigns in that way. Knowing that even as troubled as we can be and, and the issues that we face, knowing that we have a sovereign creator who is ruling all things and doing so well and doing so rightly and good should give us great hope. Now, when you begin to get into Psalm 10, however, it seems kind of contrary to what we saw in Psalm 9. Um, it begins with the psalmist asking questions, Why, O Lord, do you stand far away, and why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? Now, again, it would seem to, to go contrary to what we saw in Psalm 9, that we should rejoice in the Lord. So the psalmist goes from rejoicing in the Lord to, the, to questioning the Lord. However, most scholars believe that Psalm 9 and 10 were actually not separate, that they were one psalm. And, and most agree, um, and, and there's some reasons for that, and, and it actually makes a lot of sense. Um, many of the psalms in this section have the superscription title. Um, it'll say, to the choir master according to some so-and-so, written by so-and-so. Well, this one doesn't have that, right? Um, and, and there's no attributed to an author either, which is kind of odd during this section of the psalms. But it also begins to make sense um, to trust that David possibly is the author to this, and he's continuing what he went through in Psalm 9. Now, kind of knowing that and, and understanding that possible link between the two, it actually helps us begin to understand the full scope of what Psalm 10 is really discussing. And it, it kind of helps us show... Um, what the author is going through as he feels the brokenness of sin and the rampant nature of sin flowing then into a really calm assurance in trusting the goodness and the greatness and the sovereignty of God. Now, it's important for us to remember that we live in a sin-stained, completely fallen world where it does seem that evil is rampant. It does seem that evil is reigning. But the reality is, is it's not. It may seem to be, 
and things may seem to be out of control. And every day we're faced with things that would seem to, to go against the goodness and the greatness of God. But they do not. Because in the end, sin does not rule, sin does not reign, and sin has absolutely no place for a victorious ending. Only Christ does. And so here's the main idea of the text and where we'll be today. That evil is rampant, but the righteous have hope in the promise that God will make all things new. Now when we refer to the righteous, we're referring to those who have trusted in Christ for salvation. So I want to pray for us and I want to pray for our time and then we'll begin to kind of dissect this psalm together. Our Father, we come humbly now opening Your Word, expecting and hoping to hear from You. And so we're asking, Father, that You would um, speak through the words of Your Spirit. God, I would ask that You would kind of hush my mouth and that You would speak for us and to us what we need to hear. God, You know the situations in our lives better than we even know them. You you know our hearts better than we know our hearts. You know what we need far greater than we know what we need. And so we ask, Father, that you would meet us right here, right now. That as we work through this text together, you will make yourself glorious in our sight. That we would trust in you, that we would rejoice greatly in you as we begin to understand and trust that you do make all things new. Father, I know that the weight of sin in our lives and in our surrounding circles and in our world really seems out of control and it really does weigh us down, but God, you are the rock that we can stand on. No amount of evil, no amount of wickedness, no amount of pain will ever move you from your place of sovereign goodness. And we rejoice in that hope. We rejoice in the fact that Christ has defeated death forever through His own death. A death that sets those in captive to sin free. A death that gives the gift of salvation to those who trust in you. And so God, as we work through this passage this morning, I pray that our hearts will be stirred with affection toward you as we hear of your goodness and we rejoice in your majesty. And may our lives be radically changed by the good news that we hear today. It's in Jesus' great name we pray. Amen. Let's begin to dive into Psalm 10. The first point that we come to in the text is the pride of the wicked. Again, verse 1, Why, O Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? The author is seemingly questioning 
the, the supreme reign of God. He's, he's questioning the silence of God. Remember, he just finished up remembering that God doesn't forget, that, that God is good, that God is reign, and we should rejoice. And now he's saying, but, but why, O oh Lord, are you standing far away? Why are you hiding yourselves in times of trouble? He's, he's actually a little confused. And I'm probably sure that most of us could resonate with that. That we trust in the sovereignty of God, we trust in the leading of God, but there are probably many times in our life where we want to question, what are you doing, God? Where are you? Where we seem to cry out and not hear answers. That's where the author has found himself. He's, he's saying, that, you know, God, you're a righteous judge and you judge according to your goodness and your grace, but, but all of this evil seems to continue to swell and rise and And it seems that you're silent or far off. And the truth is, is we live again in a world that is full of sin and we live in a world that is full of evil and wickedness and it does seem to overtake good at times. But I want us to look further down into verses 2 and following as he begins to explain why he is questioning where the Lord is. Verse 2, he says, In arrogance the wicked hotly pursue the poor. Let them be caught in the schemes that they have devised. For the wicked boast of the desires of his soul, and the one greedy for gain curses and renounces the Lord. In the pride of his face, the wicked does not seek him. All his thoughts are, there is no God. His ways prosper at all times. Your judgments are on high, out of His sight. As for all of His foes, He puffs at them. He says in His heart, I shall not be moved. Throughout all generations, I shall not meet adversity. One of the the difficult things for Christians is to be extremely concerned for those who are struggling with sin. To see those who have fallen prey or captive to sin, or for those who have never trusted in Christ, and and to be bound by sin and wickedness. And and we we try to encourage, we, we try to help those folks only to have them seem have zero regard for what we're doing. And, and zero regard for who God is and the character of God. It, it can be heartbreaking to see people we love, sometimes even in arrogance, announce their lack of needing the Lord. Or the lack of Him even existing. You know, in other parts of Scripture, it says, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. And Our hearts should break over that truth. That people see the beauty of creation. They see all of the works of God and yet completely denounce Him. See, pride is a trait that in our culture we boast about. But it's probably one of the most damning traits as well. Because what pride does is it conceals the sin in our life, and it begins to help us see or lead us to see that we have no need for anyone else. 
So what it's doing is it's blinding us to the reality of, of what is actually there. And in terms of sin, it's gut-wrenching. To see people we love and to see people we care about walking in sin or, or falling prey to sin, and we try to encourage and we try to care only to have them reject. Or not acknowledge it at all. But that's what sin does, is it blinds us. There are probably, uh, there have been many times in, especially in the time that New City has been here, and I'm sure that you have had many times in your life where you have encouraged others to toward holiness and you've encouraged others to turn to Christ and you've encouraged others to to just take inventory of life just to see where they are and to see if they truly are living for the Lord. And when sin occurs, to, to call someone out in sin only to have them completely ignore or reject you and the Lord. And there's not many things harder than that. To see someone you love greatly just reject the greatness of God. But that's what wickedness does. Again, it blinds us to the truth and it leads us, as we see in verse 4, to, to in essence have this mindset that there is no God. And whether or not they're saying it physically or whether or not we... we pronounce that our lives tell a completely different story, right? I mean, because we can say all day long that we're followers of God, or we can say all day long that we're good with the Lord, but what does our life actually show? I mean, the Scripture tells us that we can judge a tree, a tree, a tree by the fruit it bears. So we must be careful to not let pride blind us to the reality. Because that's exactly what happens. See, the prideful is blinded to the condition of their heart. They don't see their need for God. They don't see their need for redemption. They don't see their need for hope. And what pride does is it begins to not just simply be a trait, but it begins to manifest itself in action in our lives. Look, look at verse 7. His mouth is filled with cursing and deceit and oppression. Under his tongue are mischief and iniquity. He sits in ambush in the villages. In hiding places he murders the innocent. His eyes stealthily watch for the helpless. He lurks in ambush like a lion in his thicket. He lurks that he may seize the poor. He seizes the poor when he draws him into his net. The helpless are crushed, sink down, and fall by His might. He says in his heart, God has forgotten. He has hidden His face. He will never see it. The action of the prideful begins to really show itself in their lives. In verse 7, he begins to talk about his speech. His speech is corrupt. It's filthy. It's perverse begin to talk down of others and beat others down. And Scripture basically says we might as well have murdered them. 
I was captivated by this quote from Horn. He says, of the righteous, I mean of the prideful, he says, he wants no prophet to teach him, no priest to atone for him, no king to conquer, conduct him. He needs neither a Christ to redeem nor a spirit to sanctify him. He believes no providence, adores no creator, and fears no judge. The pride of the wicked leads one to believe that they are all they need. And that's gut-wrenching for us. Because for those who have trusted Christ, we understand that we can't do it alone. I can't save myself. No amount of good works are going to buy my way into the presence of God. Only trusting in Christ can do that. And, and in that pride, the wicked begins to also keep watch on others. Not so they can help, but so that they can destroy. They sit like a lion in the shadows waiting for his prey so that they can pounce. Always pointing out the faults of others. Always trying to look for the opportune time to destroy or hurt someone else. Always pointing out others' issues without ever looking internally and saying, I have my own problems. Looking for weaknesses in others to exploit those. This happens in friendships. It happens in business. It happens in marriage. Always watching. Always keeping score. Always seeing the negative. Always trying to point out the faults of others without ever looking back and saying, I'm the problem. That's what pride does. Is it blinds us to that true reality. But the alternative is the one who is poor in spirit, who is trusted in the grace of Christ, who knows their need for Christ, for salvation. And that is a true Christian. And the true Christian looks to love and to serve, not to seek and devour. So if you've fallen into this trap of always looking for how you can best someone, or always even thinking, man, I hope they slip so that I can... You see what I'm saying? Man, I sure would hate for that person to fail, but man, if they do, when in reality we're kind of hoping that they do so we can move in and achieve whatever goal they were trying to achieve or we can benefit in what ways they could not. There's no righteousness in that. There's no good in that. And we're no different than a lion who's sitting in the thicket and waiting to ambush his prey. But that's what pride does, is it blinds us. See, the, the pride of the wicked, it leads us to believe that what we see in verse 11, that God has forgotten, He has hidden His face, He will never see it. So we get to this point, like, it doesn't matter what I do, God's not going to see it. It doesn't matter who I hurt, God's... God's, God don't care. God's forgotten me. He's, he's not part of the situation. And so we have this complete disregard for the greatness and the majesty of God. But there is nothing that's going to happen in our life that God is unaware of. 
He is omniscient. He knows all things. He is omnipresent. He's everywhere. He, he is, period. And when we try to hurt others, I can assure you, we may have everyone fooled, but it, God is not. He will not be mocked. And pride leads us to want to hurt others. And it leads us to think that there are simply no consequences for my actions. And that's where the author's at. He's questioning, but, but God, I, I'm rejoicing in you, but, and, and I'm, I'm praising you for your righteous judgment, but all of these things continue to amass, and all of these things continue to swell, and it seems that you're far off or, or not even here at all. Where are you? And so he turns from the attention of the pride of the wicked to then now praying a prayer of the righteous man. In verse 12, he says, Arise, O Lord, O God, lift up your hand. Forget not the afflicted. Why does the wicked renounce God and say in his heart, You will not call to account? But you do see, for you note mischief and vexation, that you may take it into your hands to... You, the helpless, commits himself. You have been the helper of the fatherless. So he turns his attention from from seeing all of this evil and rampant wickedness that abounds, and he's now turning his attention to, to cry out to the Lord, and he's praying for God to remember the afflicted. He's praying for God to do right. He's praying for God to be just. And what we see now is this, big, this huge contrast between the wicked, which we just read about in the previous verses, to now seeing the, the righteous and his prayer to God and his, his crying out for God to remember. Because he's concerned for others. What a difference. The prideful, the wicked in verses 7 through 11, or technically 2 through 11, is really just wanting to find a weakness so that they could exploit it instead of praying for God to, to redeem and praying for God to work and praying for God to save. And so the, the tide completely turns now in verses 12 through 14, and he's crying out, God, but you save and this should really kind of be a kick in the pants for us as the people of God because as Christians, we have a responsibility to love the unlovable and to serve the afflicted. But so often we turn away from the unlovable because they're unlovable. And, and we don't want to serve the afflicted. We want to say, get yourself your own help. Figure it out. You got yourself into this mess. You can figure out how to get it out. But may I remind us all that that's exactly the opposite of what God did for us through Jesus. Because we were completely unlovable and we were completely afflicted, completely stained and marred with sin, and yet God loving us enough to send Christ to die for us despite our wickedness and our vile nature. And He shows His love and His laying His life down for us. And if we're called to be like Christ, then how can we justify living in pride and 
and beating down and turning a blind eye to those who are hurting. It's not possible. We try to justify it in you know, a million different ways, but at the end of the day, we have a call to live like Christ, to have a call to carry on the character of Christ, and we have to be honest. We have a responsibility. Look at verse 15. In his prayer, he goes on, he says, But break the arm of the wicked and the evildoer. Call his wickedness to account till you find none. He's praying for God to be righteous in his judgment. He's trusting that God will lead righteously. Over the last several weeks, we've seen this, that God is a righteous judge, that God is a gracious king. And he now is turning his attention back to that, and he's just crying out to God, you just be you. It's God's place to judge. He's trusting in God's providential rule that God knows what's best. It's not our place to be judge and jury. It's not our place to seek judgment. Yet that's what our nature wants to do. We constantly want to vindicate ourselves. We want to vindicate our people. And we want to stand up for what we believe is right. But ultimately judgment lies in God's hands. We are called to proclaim the goodness of the gospel of Christ. To proclaim that sin is real. And that we need desperately to be saved from it. And we trust God to handle the rest. But so often in our lives, we do the complete opposite and we try to play judge, jury, and king. And we pronounce condemnation on people who are no different than us. And we pronounce judgment on people that desperately need the grace of Christ that many of us have already received. And we do so because we have forgotten who God is and what God has done for us. Because in case we have forgotten, if it wasn't for the saving grace of Christ, we would be the one who was like the lion sitting in the thicket waiting to pounce. It's only by the graciousness of God that we can be saved. And many of us are. And so far, this is nothing more than a snapshot of our everyday life. We're surrounded by evil, we're surrounded by wickedness, we're surrounded by pride and prideful people who can't see their need for God, who live their life as a practical atheist who sees no need to even acknowledge someone other than themselves. And then you see the the contrast of the righteous who is crying out to God, but God, just don't forget, God, be righteous in your judgments. God, be you. We trust in you, we, we lean into you, and then it turns then now to the praise of the king. Because ultimately, at the end of the day, God is worthy of our praise. And even though evil is rampant, and even though wickedness seems to abound, God is greater. And as this psalm transitions into these three different breaks, really, we see exactly what we talked about in the beginning of 
our time together that you see the author's brokenness over sin and he's, and he's crying out to God, but then he begins to find assurance in who God is. And in verse 16, he says, The Lord is king forever and ever. The nations perish from his land. O Lord, you hear the desire of the afflicted. You will strengthen their heart. You will incline your ear to do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed, so that man who is of the earth may strike terror no more. He's remembering the majesty of God. Remember two weeks ago in Psalm 8, The psalmist spends an entire psalm declaring the majesty of God. O Lord, O Lord, how majestic is your name in all of the earth. And here we find in verse 16, he's saying, And you, Lord, are king forever. You will reign eternally. There is no beginning and there is no end to your reign. You always were, you always will be. A good and a gracious creator who upholds all things by the word of His power, who sustains all things. And He is King forever. And even as this great and powerful and majestic King, He still hears the cry and the the prayer of the afflicted, the poor in spirit those who know they desperately need help. Who know they need someone other than themselves to pull them out of the pit. O Lord, you hear the desire of the afflicted. You will strengthen their heart. You will incline your ear to hear. You know, God gives strength to the weak. And He does so through the gift of Jesus and salvation. It doesn't mean that things are going to get easy or hard times will seem to fade away, that we're owed some you know, good blessings. That, that's not what it's saying at all. But we find strength as we begin to trust in the one who has all strength, and that's Jesus. The only joy we can truly have in life is in Christ. It's easy to think that we're finding joy in other things. Our families, our children, our, our jobs, just life in general, our friends. But ultimately, true joy comes from Christ. All the other things will pass away. People will fail us. That's what sin does. But God does not. The gift of Christ to save was the perfect gift, completely unblemished. And that good king continues on to do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed so that man who is of the earth may strike terror no more. This good king, who is also a saving king, is a reigning king. He reigns supremely. And all the while you see that evil is running rampant and 
and terror begins to strike fear into the people of God. And, and it seems that we have no control, or sometimes it even seems maybe God doesn't even have control, but be assured He does. He never loses His power. His victory is never waning. He is the King forever and ever. And it may seem, especially at certain times and moments in our life, that all hell is breaking loose. That evil has triumphed. But it hasn't. And it will not. And I can tell you it will not, and it has not, because I know the end of the story. At the end of the day, appearances are deceiving. It may seem that evil is reigning, that evil is rampant, but Jesus is reigning. And in Revelation 21, He promises to make all things new. He does so because His death in His death, He has defeated sin and death forever. And so I'm going to play spoiler and I'm going to read the end of the story. In Revelation 21, this is what we see. And I, I want you just to think about this. Imagine being John and having this vision from God. Imagine having this assurance given. Now, remember, John had been through quite the trouble. They had tried to kill him before and they failed. Then they tried to boil him alive in hot oil and it did not kill him. And so as that wasn't punishment enough, they put him on the island of Patmos to live in complete isolation. And God gave him comfort and God gave him assurance. And this is what he hears from God towards the end. Chapter 21 of Revelation, starting in verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be His people and God Himself will be with them as their God. And He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed Away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. He promises to make all things new. And I don't know where you're at. I don't know what you think about God or, or how great you think God is. You may question, well, yeah, that's good and all, but... If you read on past where he says, Behold, I am making all things new, it says these are words of the one who is faithful and trustworthy and true. I'm here to tell you these are the words of truth. 
And if the one who has created all things has also conquered sin and death, and he has promised that he is making all things new, you better take it to the bank. Because he is. And maybe you're here, and, and maybe you actually are finding yourself more in the, the company of the wicked where pride has come in and it's just overtaken you. And you may think there is no need for God and you may think there is no God at all and I can just live my life because at the end it doesn't matter. I could just do what I want and I could just say what I want and I could just react how I want and I could just treat people the way I want and I don't need salvation. I'm telling you, pride has overtaken you and sin has grabbed a hold of you and unless you trust in Christ, you're going to find out the very hard way that these words are true. Because there is a day coming where every one of us will stand before the holiness of God and we will give an account. And if we haven't trusted Christ, then we will be separated from God forever. So I'm calling you to trust in Christ, to repent of your sin and believe in the goodness of God. Believe that Christ loves you and gave Himself for you. That He suffered so that you wouldn't have to. And that even goes a step further, that there might be some of you in here who are believers, but you've just slipped in your faith, and you've, you're living your life. You might be saying with your lips that you're a Christian, but your lifestyle tells a completely different story. I'm telling you to repent of that sin and believe the goodness of Christ again. There may be some of you in here who are Christians who are just simply doubting because of the different trials and storms of life and the mess that happens every day that surrounds us. I'm encouraging you to find rest and trust in Jesus once again. that you would be able at the end of the day to realize, yes, there are storms in life, that evil is everywhere it seems. But as Psalm 10, 16 says, the Lord is King forever and ever. I pray that you can find your hope and your trust in Him. And know that He is coming to make all things new. Let's pray. Our Father, we are coming to acknowledge and confess Your greatness, Your majesty. God, I know as hard as it is to admit that there are people here today who simply don't know you. They might have said they did, they might have even went through the motions to prove they did, but at the end of the day, their heart just is denying you. So God, I pray that you would just open the eyes of those souls, God, that they might see the glories of Christ.
And God, I'm crying out for the many of us who are Christians, God, who may be doubting or who may be struggling and know that that's okay. It's, it's okay to not be perfect. But that we can, in grace, trust you with our lives, our situations, our joys, and our trials. I pray, God, that we would understand what it means to, to really trust in Jesus. To not labor ourselves to death trying to work our way into heaven, but simply rest in the goodness of Christ and enjoy living for Him, living a life that declares His goodness to the nations. God, I pray that Your Word would just penetrate deep into our hearts. You know us. You know where we are. You know what we need. Meet us, we pray.